Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, here's a question. Are you renting or buying Is affordability at the top of your list? Well, if it is, perhaps it's a challenge. Not just an Atlanta issue, it's a national crisis. Housing affordability in the city of Atlanta. But here's another question. Does Atlanta have a viable plan? Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens joins the program in just a moment. He's going to answer my questions and some of yours. All that's ahead. But first this, several metro Atlanta counties are facing challenges to the eligibility of tens of thousands of voters. Those challenges are coming from groups pushing baseless conspiracy theories about voter fraud. Local election boards have dismissed most of them, but now come, but now new ones can still be filed and that voting is underway. Now that voting is underway, as we hear from Sam Greenglass. Vasu Abiraman with the ACLU of Georgia says when a challenge for the upcoming election comes in, the local election board has a really high threshold to move the complaint forward. They're supposed to immediately consider the evidence that is submitted and whether it rises to the level of probable cause. And if they don't feel like it rises to the level of probable cause, they dismiss it and that's it. The bulk of mass challenges haven't gone beyond this step. An election board might not be able to meet right when every challenge comes in. Until they do, a voter's ability to cast a ballot is not affected. Now, what happens if a challenge does have a probable cause? When they arrive at a polling place, voters will appear in the system as challenged. In some counties, voters can sign a residency affidavit on the spot and fix the issue. Otherwise, voters have to use a paper ballot that will be marked as challenged. And then if you're in that situation and you vote a challenged ballot, a hearing on the merits of whether you are actually an eligible voter, that's what needs to happen. The election office will follow up about a hearing which has to be resolved before the election is certified. For the vast supermajority of voters in Georgia, you're not getting caught up in this challenge process. Uh, those corner cases where you're a voter that you know shows up and finds out you're in challenge status, being educated that this is going on is the way to you know ensure that you can take the proper next steps. While it's unclear how many more mass challenges may happen, one thing is certain. They tie up election officials in hours of extra labor at a moment when they've got no time to spare. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And speaking of voting, Georgia voters have now cast more than a million ballots for the November midterms. Our other politics reporter, Raul Bali, has more on this record-breaking turnout. Georgia hit the one million mark in just nine days of in-person early voting, well ahead of the pace in 2018. Every voter, Republican, Democrat, and Independent, understand that their vote is extremely valuable in the state. Gabe Sterling is with the Georgia Secretary of State's office. We have seen millions upon millions upon millions of dollars from candidates, campaigns, and third-party organizations driving people to the polls. State elections officials are projecting another 3 million of Georgia's 7 million voters will cast a ballot in the November midterms. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capitol. And an update to that, it's actually 1.1 million, and that is 16% of the eligible voters in our state. By the way, early voting continues until Friday, November 4th. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. If housing affordability is at the top of your list, whether you're a renter or a buying or a buyer, you're probably saying, you know what, it is a challenge. And we have asked so many people on this program so many times, what are the solutions? Often we get what the problems are, and sometimes we get solutions. Take a listen. People used to be able to come to Atlanta and spend, you know, less than 30% of their income on housing. That's changed. Even prior to the rise in rates, just the increase in home prices overall has made Atlanta unaffordable. And so today, the median income household is spending about 41% of their income just to afford a house. Healthcare is a really important part of it, but the science shows it's actually a relatively small part of it. And it's the opportunity to live in a safe community and to quality, affordable housing, have access to good jobs and good life opportunities. That's really what makes people healthy. Landlords, many of whom who took big hits during the pandemic because of the moratorium, have made a very concerted decision across the board. In my humble opinion, it boils down to this. We don't want to serve low to moderate income families anymore. The market is demanding much higher rents and we're going to get them. It's not too late, but with every decision, big decision, every big project, every Beltline, every Westside Park, every major development decision, it is becoming harder and harder. And voices from guests all about housing. Of course, it, it varies in terms of what's considered affordable. And think about this. We're talking about Atlanta, but think about this. It's estimated nearly half of the 43 million renter households in this nation are considered housing cost burden, meaning they spend more than 30 percent of their income on housing. And for you listening out there, how much are you spending on your housing? Is it more than 30 percent? And if you're looking to buy what's considered an affordable house, well, that too is a challenge. And as I mentioned, it's not just Atlanta. It's a national crisis. So does Atlanta have a viable plan, and what is it? And is it too late? Let's welcome Mayor Andre Dickens. Good to see you, as always. Good to see you too, Rose. I'm glad to be on here talking about my favorite subject. You talked about this when you were on city council, along with some fellow council members. You talked about this when you were running as a candidate. And now you said, look, this is going to be a part core of my administration. At the time of this broadcast, you're coming off from giving a speech at House ATL, and I'm going to quote you here. You said, quote, so we have some work to do, and that work in so many ways starts with housing because housing is fundamentally tied to everything else we care about. It's intrinsic to a family success, tied directly to education, health, wealth, and safety, close quote. Well, I want to ask you in terms of that clip that we just heard, and I believe it was Professor Dan Emmergluck, he says it's not too late. You agree with that? Can Atlanta be the city that sets the template, that has a plan in place overall to address this crisis? Yeah, I think we are at a point where uh, we are in a crisis. We're in an affordable housing crisis, a, a crisis of people spending too much of their money on housing, which then leaves them very little money for the rest of the things they need. And so right now, I would say we are at a point where we must do something. And I think the efforts that we'll put in place will sl uh, slow this down, if not stop it altogether. Is this something that needs to be First, you start with policy and legislation, whether it's at that city, city level, obviously, we're talking about Atlanta, is that where you start? Because you look at other cities and they're trying to pass ordinances, whether it's with single family zoning and all of that. Mm -hmm. Is this a policy driven focus in terms of addressing this? Is that where you're beginning? I'm beginning at housing uh, development. 
to build more units of housing because this is a supply and demand. And so making sure that our vacant land that we have, you know, everybody in Atlanta walks around saying we fool. But meanwhile, we have uh, close to 2000 acres of government owned land between the city of Atlanta, APS, HUD, uh, Land Bank Authority, you know, MARTA, Beltline, everybody. We've got land here, there in pockets and some in large swaths of land like Thomasville, mm-hmm. Bankhead, Born Homes. We're going to build a lot there. And we're we being the city of Atlanta. Yes, that's why I created the housing strike force, the right. affordable housing strike force. So uh, coming from all my experience on city council, I've created policies. So I believe in the power of policy and I believe in the power of our coordination and coming up with all these strategies. But what we didn't have was a delivery mechanism. I'm all about implementation. I, I love the meetings, but I like the doing. And so now we're at a point where my chief uh, operating officer, I hired her. She, she came from Atlanta Habitat for Humanity mm-hmm. for seven years. She led that organization. And, and that's Lisa, Lisa Gordon. Gordon. Mm-hmm. Lisa Gordon. And then my senior advisor, Courtney English, came from Star C, where he was a nonprofit developer. We know how to develop and build. So we're pushing all these organizations to get to work and building housing. Can you do this? And also you are you have to look at the market you yeah. have to look at what developers, you know, obviously we have, you said we have our own land. That's mm-hmm. great. But what you can't control is the market. Sure. Yeah. You can't control the market, uh, which is, market forces are very real. And Atlanta continues to be extremely attractive. And so every day new people are coming here. And then people that are here having you know babies or graduating from college and they want to continue to live here. So we are a booming city. Um, and so what happens when you're growing like that, you have to keep up with the demand by creating more supply. But we also can restrict some of the supply and set it aside for affordability. And that's where we're coming into the policy uh, frame framework like inclusionary zoning and also anything that would be a rent control policy. Well, let's talk about policy. Let's start there because you mentioned the inclusionary zoning. You are you feel like you have the full support of the Atlanta City Council because let's be really clear too depending on what neighborhood you live in and I'll get an email about this. Some folks don't want to be inclusionary. <laughs> I'm just keeping it. You know that. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. So, well, you know what? Everybody talks about being inclusionary, but they say not in my backyard, right? So they'll say, yeah, we need to make sure that we have places for our police officers, fire, firefighters, and school teachers. Somebody's got to do something about it. And I say, well, can I put uh, 20% of the units in that development right next to you? Oh, no, not right there. We mm-hmm. don't need that over there. Why don't you do that down there or over there? And there, so then therein lies a the problem. Right. Well, let's back up then. These properties, including APS and what the city owns and mm-hmm. in, in, in Atlanta housing Atlanta housing here are they is it spread out it's not just concentrated in one area yeah they're spread out they're throughout the city because that's where you know Atlanta public schools has a lot of housing uh, a lot of uh, land and a lot of old schools because we used to be segregated mm-hmm. it was a black high school and a white high school black middle school black you know like that kind of thing existed so now we've been converting those into lofts or condos or they're dilapidated and so we want to be able to bring some of those properties to back to life some of these things that uh that are old city facilities things that are excess properties be able to convert those into housing who will manage these is there going to be a different, do you have to come up with a different department? I mean, the city yeah. of Atlanta is going to be landlords. In right. Sense. Well, so each of these entities still has their own board of directors or commissioners. And so what we're doing as a strike force is looking at the connectivity of these properties and still taking it to their boards for the final vote. But the conduit for making sure that the developers and the, uh, the permitting processes and everything is uh, linked and tied together, it makes for a bigger development. Here, here's one example. In mm-hmm. Thomasville, where Forest Cove is. Yeah. You have HUD. That's a HUD-owned property. That's owned by the federal government. Mm-hmm. But also the city of Atlanta, uh, Atlanta Housing Authority, owns land across the street from there. And Parks and Rec owns land over there. And APS owns land over there. And then there are some other developers that owns land. Why would we develop one singular property at a time versus doing a master development so you can build more and get more out of it? How many properties are – how many – vacant buildings or lots or what have you. We're talking about APS. They have a lot. Because remember, yeah. back in the day, this was a big mess in terms of deeds. Yes. Folks, <laughs> deeds, folks, <laughs> memory lane, huh? Yeah. Folks <laughs> arguing about, well, give us our deeds, and yeah. this is not your deed, and this, that, and the third. So how, how many properties are we talking about here? 
And does APS, are they on board with this? APS is all the way on board. We're talking about, you know, from an APS perspective, we're talking about somewhere in, uh, you know, a few dozen properties, um, some large-scale properties, and some that are small enough for us to put maybe 20 townhomes on. But that's 20 more units for teachers or for uh, bus drivers or what have you. Um, and so once you combine them all, it's thousands of um, pieces of property that we will navigate together. And think about it. APS had to admit, that they are not developers. They are educators. And so they said, well, city help us. And so Invest Atlanta and all of us together will help MARTA, APS, and these entities do what they want to do, which is build on the land. But they don't know how to build. They don't know the lingo. They don't know uh, the development cycle. We do. So now comes in, okay, who are you partnering with? I Often I think of Quest Properties yeah. as one of the ones that we hear about Atlanta Land Trust. Are you partnering with these other entities to build? And is this the sole focus then in terms of this 20,000 units that you say can come online within yeah. eight years? <laughs> so two questions in one. So yeah. who we're partnering with is every single developer that wants to partner with us in the city of Atlanta. Some are local, some are, are, are national. The scale of how much we're doing, uh, like the Civic Center is a, a combination of a local developer and a Chicago developer. And then, you know... Well, we hope, because remember now... The last first, guys tried to leave on us, but well, they... And, you, and that has happened before. And the same company, Tishman, they, they tried to... Uh, they had and, and, West End, and, and they had a so Civic Center, so... Are you they know, like... At the back of the list now, you're not going to work with them anymore? Yeah, they're, mean, they're like how I used to be when I used to try to get in the club in L.A. I was in the back of the line. They couldn't let, I, I, had to, I wasn't going to get in, in too easily because after you've done me wrong like that twice in the city of Atlanta, Tishman but, can't call us too easily. No but more. as a developer, look, there some developers aren't in the business of trying to just come up with affordable housing. Mm -hmm. They're in the business of making money. Yeah. So do, are you going to run? Do you think you're going to run into issues with developers who say, well, we understand your crisis, but we can only give so much percentage. And you're talking about yeah. having more than just it used to be that 10 to 15 percent. We're not going to be doing that on our land. On our land, we're going to go larger scale with the affordable housing. How large? Well, we don't want to go 100 percent because you don't want uh, concentration of poverty in these things. So you want to make sure that you have mixed income. So we're looking at trying to make sure we get closer to a third low income, a third workforce, and a third market rate. So low income is uh, individuals in that 50% AMI or below, and then the workforce is that 60 to 80% AMI, and then the marketplace is above that. Is that attractive to developers? You are in rooms with them, Mayor Dickens. Do they push back on that and say, can, oh, we, yeah. can we come down a little bit on that? Oh, yeah. Developers are in the business of making money, um, but luckily we have a lot of nonprofit developers like Quest, like Mercy uh, Care, like Mercy Housing, like um, a number of others. I get myself in trouble for naming all of them but it's about i'll say it's about 15 in the mm -hmm. metro atlanta area uh sumac and hddc and some others um and these uh, individuals have a um a a that part of their mission and vision is to have long holdings of affordable property like star c mm -hmm. and so with that they are mission driven so they they want to make a certain amount of uh income and no more because that's part of their mission but what we're also doing is uh partnering with churches and uh, mosques and temples, we want 10% of this 20000 to come from them because the model for churches is different than it was even two years ago, but certainly different than it was 80, uh, in the 80s when everybody had these huge parking lots mm -hmm. for these mega churches. And now on a Sunday, you're only using a third of that parking lot. Well, now you can turn that parking lot into a parking garage with housing on top of it for senior citizens, etc. So I have development right now. I'm going to be cutting a ribbon on Sunday at a church mm -hmm. that's going to build 300 units of affordable housing in downtown uh first uh, first uh, methodist and so it's uh, a great time right now with even the housing that's coming from uh, religious communities i want to go back to uh, mayor keisha lance bottoms where she had i think it was the one billion affordability plan or something like that yeah. have you kept that or has that been modified or you, you're doing something <clears throat> totally different so i haven't put a dollar amount on it because the dollars change i've put a number of units on it because units to me uh talk about people they talk about family so twenty thousand families will be impacted by us over the next eight years having housing units and that cost to me that's is, a six billion dollar number is that renting or is that also uh, some house ownership, ownership some ownership and some renting yeah How do you come up with twenty thousand well, 20000 was a number based on where we were uh, around last year with what deficit we had in the need for affordable housing. We, we needed it somewhere around about 40,000 units. And I knew 
I couldn't do that. So I looked at what half of it would be um, and then try to hopefully the market will take care of some of that. And then on the other end of this, not to convolute messages, but affordable housing, the the housing part is one of it. The affordable means incomes. Mm -hmm. We have to get people better jobs and better income. So my strategy is we build the affordable housing and then we get people into a process of certifications and training to where they can be in down payment assistance so they can get a house and then somebody else can go into that affordable unit. Well, let's stop there and let's talk about folks who right now say, you know what, Mayor Dickens, I'm listening to you. Uh, we're not we're, we're not struggling. We we are ready to buy, mm-hmm. but we can't <laughs> because we we cannot find anything that's affordable. And yeah. this is where probably the, there lies a the rub because this is what you can't control. You can't yeah. control investors coming in, buying up properties. You can control when big tech comes in. I'm not picking on them. No. Google and Microsoft send me an email. But when they come into communities and then everyone wants to and then their employees want maybe high end mm-hmm. luxury living that you can't control. And perhaps they're near or in a historic, a legacy neighborhood. What are you doing about this? What's the plan there? Yeah, this is tough. And then just to add one more layer of tough toughness. is a good word. <laughs> messed up but no one other thing to add to it is last year as we were talking about you know campaigns and everything we didn't know that the interest rates were going to jump as much as they did in one year and we didn't know that inflation was going to happen like it did in this one year so now you have more month than money Mm -hmm. everybody has more month than money right now because the inflation and the interest rate so if you were about to buy a house last year I, i wish you did because now the interest rates are higher so what we're doing is working with the federal government and hud um i have a great relationship with our Madam Secretary uh, Fudge. Mm -hmm. She and I were talking about a 40-year mortgage where you can afford more um, because the cost of housing going up. So at least you can be able to pay for it each month because so many renters are looking for a way to buy. But where? In Atlanta. But the housing stock is so expensive, uh, so that's why we're having people, you know, developers build more affordable housing. This is all part of the plan. I can't tell you that it's going to be enough yeah. for sale property uh, for everyone to be able to buy a house because it's just so expensive. But we'll be able to have down payment assistance. We'll be able to buy down some of these things for people to get their first starter home. Um, and, you know, especially we're looking at our police officers and firefighters first to try to help them. In terms of building new buildings, new bills, and again, this goes back to policy and legislation because when you bring up single-family zoning, mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on whom you ask, yeah. what is the plan there? Is there is there a way, because I, I get this, you, we, there was a neighborhood we talked about, they got all mad in their feelings because they want to become a historic neighborhood and they want to prevent certain types of buildings mm-hmm. going up in their neighborhood. Some say it's understandable, others say, oh, now you're being the, the problem. From a policy standpoint, what needs to happen from you all to help with this whole housing affordability plan in terms of zoning and ordinance and all that? It's a lot to it. It's a complicated puzzle for sure. I mean, you know, every mayor says that. Really? Well, hey, it is. Once and you it get is, into it, yeah. I mean, you're you're driving around a city that in 1952 it looked like Inman Park and West End and and downtown, and then in 1952 it became Buckhead. Uh, Adamsville, Cascade, Grove Park, Riverside, all of them came into the city at once. So we tripled in size in 1952. Mm-hmm. So why am I describing that? Those were suburban field uh, types, uh, land lots. They mm-hmm. were half acre or uh, acre or more. And so how do we now go back to those communities and say, you now can no longer be single family? Mm -hmm. I I think, I mean, I live on a single family lot. I live on an acre in the city of Atlanta, Mm -hmm. actually more than that. And I I desired that as much as I did desire a a condo when I had a condo Mm -hmm. uh, 20 years ago. So I think we need to have a diverse housing stock, which is why it's a complicated piece of the puzzle to be able to say, I, I appreciate and need more diversity of housing and density. And where do we get that density? We have thousands of acres of land that we own that we can control the land use, the zoning of, and we also are acquiring uh, high-rise properties like I just bought uh, for $39 million, um, two Peachtree. I want to get into that for a moment. Yeah. I have a question from a listener about that too, but okay, go ahead. Good, good. So, um, you know, buying property um, is also a part of our strategy on, on key corridors where density uh, can really be appreciated and utilized near MARTA stations, et cetera. You mentioned MARTA because transit is a big part of this too, and obviously, you know, transit and mobility, that affects a person's household. Are you all making sure that, too, with 
with your partners and Marta's going to be doing some building too, correct? Yeah, they want yeah, to put some, yeah. they fit into the plan too? Yeah, Marta fits directly into the plan. We want to build around around the Hamilton Home Station, which is near my house. That's the furthest west station that we have. We do have Edgewood. We just, um, I just cut ribbon on Quill, which is next to Edgewood Station, which is 25% affordable housing. And so we're doing stuff. Have at, you seen the townhomes on Edgewood that have starting at a million oh my gosh yeah now i'm not send me your emails or send them to the mayor i'm not hating as they say i remember and i tell this story all the time when i first came to atlanta we play basketball over there in edgewood Mm -hmm. everybody's like everybody got a neighborhood i'm like that ain't bothering us (laughs) now edgewood is hot yeah one point something million bankhead everything is going up so one thing i said in 2013 and this ain't about being right this is about that it'll happen again 2013, when I was running for May, uh, for city council, I said, what's affordable now will not be affordable tomorrow if we don't do anything about it. And that was me talking to West End, Westview, Grove Park. So what happened? What happened was we needed mechanisms to control the, the, the future set of circumstances, meaning inclusionary zoning, meaning uh, um, owner-occupied rehab to help these people rehab their own homes versus, you know, some investor coming in there knocking on your door saying, I can uh, buy your house for 100K and you get excited for that and you can't buy anything else for 100K. Is it fair to say previous administrations didn't do enough or they didn't have the money to do what you can do or the partnerships? Um, not looking to blame, but no, just... yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, that's just, this is delicate. It's sensitive to respond to that. Um, but let me say it this way: I have an enormous amount of will around what my my intentions are. Huge in the direction of housing. It it is fundamental to me. So some other things were fundamental to other people, and housing was of interest. Sure. For me, it's day and night. It is. I hire people that think about housing. I go to housing meetings. I write housing policies. I push every organization that has housing around me to do more. I have converted for-profit developers into believers and say, hey, put 25% of your units or 10% of your units or set them aside for affordable housing. My conversations with people that never talk about housing, they're now talking about housing and how they can help. So what I'm just talking about is my aggressive. I can tell you, like a a friend of mine now, Radko, uh, Norman Radow, he was Mm -hmm. a part of uh, the Quill development. Um, When we talked to um, uh, Cousins Properties on the the commercial side, for them to be able to give us a police station. Um, Making sure people are aware that we are a group project. This is an ecosystem and wealthy for-profit developers have to contribute. And so some are, and last one I say is like the Atlanta Apartment Association and, and Pritium. These folks came in in a major way to help Forest Cove. These residents of Forest Cove had nothing. And I said, we got to move them out. And I didn't have 200 units of affordable housing. And I want to stop you there. And I want to say, you know, we need to thank Stephanie Stokes and the WAB News team because there are a lot of Forest Coves in Atlanta, unfortunately. And some will say, glad y'all got on it. Mm -hmm. But there are so many more. And that's yeah. where ordinances come in. And you, you've said you want to crack down on, yeah. on those property owners. I want to get to two peace tree because I have a, a question from a listener that says, what will you all do to ensure two peace tree is available for working Atlanta's Atlantans in terms of affordable housing? Yeah. So I'm excited that we just bought the, uh, <laughs> what's going to be the largest residential property in the, in the city. Um, when we convert two peach tree from commercial you know, it's right now office building. Mm-hmm. Uh, we converted into a mixed use development. It's going to have retail on the bottom, okay. and then it has some offices in the middle. And Marta and I have been talking about Marta coming there and having offices there since Five Points is right below it, mm-hmm. under underneath it, and uh, and then uh, a mixed income uh, mix on on the in, on the above floor. So we're talking about some student housing, some low income housing, and some market rate housing. Mm-hmm. We also have 143 Alabama, which is about a block and a half around the corner. And then we have um, uh, something on Forsyth. I don't know the street number of it, but it's on Forsyth that we we acquired. And then we have Trinity Mm -hmm. uh, right across from City Hall. So in that south downtown area, right there in the heart of our city, we're talking about thousands of units in in conjunction with what Newport is doing, with what Centennial Yards is doing, and then also what Underground is doing. We're going to revitalize downtown and have people living there so our nighttime won't look like a ghost town uh within the next eight years and hopefully we can get it by world cup 
in those those eight years, which that twenty the twenty thousand units yep. are part of, are you counting what you already have, or are you talking about bringing on? I want to be clear for for our listeners, bringing on twenty thousand new units. And a listener has a question: What does the mayor mean by units? Just apartments, condos, housing? Yeah, a unit is one dwelling unit, one meaning dwelling. my family, me, or whoever can live in this unit. So that's a one-bedroom apartment or a three-bedroom apartment. A house or a uh, condo or a apartment or townhome is a unit. I have another question from a listener that says, at Monday's town hall in Buckhead, the mayor said he does not plan to get rid of single-family zoning. Other cities like Charlotte are taking steps to end exclusionary single-family zoning. Could you clarify your comments from the town hall? Well, I think you I know, just did. folks be listening. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, uh, we're a city full of, uh, you know, someday planners. Um, you know, <laughs> I went to Georgia State, too, for my master's in public administration with a concentration in planning and economic development. I believe in diversity, and I also believe that we'll, we don't want to be Charlotte. Charlotte wants to be us. So that's a poor example of a, a comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want anybody being told that their housing unit needs to change, that they're no longer going to be able to have their house. I think a diversity of stock as well. When we have this much housing stock that we have, then this is beneficial for us to be able to allow people to live how they want to live. And so some folks want to live with a backyard and, and, and a front yard. And some people need to, we need to have mixed, um, uh, uh, you know, multi uh, family developments. Does that all include all. tiny homes? Or I love tiny micro homes and accessory housing. dwelling units. Mm-hmm. Dwell, you know, accessory dwelling units in the backyard to be able to have a, a, a separate, you know, where someone else can live back there. Um, you can rent it out or, uh, you know, but, but I also don't believe it needs to be subdivided to where you have your house and then that becomes something that mm-hmm. you can sell separately. That was a poor policy that was um, uh, kind of proffered up in the past. Let me ask you this then. Is there a policy or legislation that you feel right now needs to either be modified or somehow revamped that you're not quite on board with as it relates to housing then? Well, I'll tell you one thing. So I created the inclusionary zoning policy initially, which was a huge appeal lift against a state that does not not allow rent control. Mm -hmm. The state firmly in policy denies any any city from having uh, rent control. So I moved around that, wiggled around that for two years to come up with inclusionary zoning, and I did it only on for rent to get it started. Mm-hmm. So now we've had a thousand units of affordable housing that we didn't have to do anything for them to make they make it happen because we created this policy. Now I want to do it for sale as well. So the expansion of inclusionary zoning to now go into for sale. So as you mm-hmm. see townhomes go up. You know, if you put a townhome on a belt line, I want to make sure that you might you might sell 10 of them for a million dollars. One of them needs to be set aside for affordability, for workforce. That has not occurred at all along the belt line or at Westside Park or any place where we do major development. So now I'm moving into the space of uh, of um, workforce housing for uh, on the for sale market. Since there isn't rent control, we have a very good relationship with our governor, Brian Kemp. Have you talked to him? Have you put him signs at governor? What can we do? You know, you have friends in the legislature. It seems seems you have a very good working relationship. What can they do on the state level to help you in cities like Atlanta? Because it's not just Atlanta with yeah. affordable housing issues. So uh, my conversation with them is, can you allow a carve out for any municipality with this many parcels? And so because they don't want this in every city. They don't for whatever reason. I mean, I know the reason, but the state doesn't want to just allow reason? carte blanche. So what I want is the local control. Don't, don't just say that. Then, the then city. What's the reason? Well, it's a land control state. Okay. This, this state appreciates the heck out of land ownership. Let's just be clear from. And that goes back to what land ownership was used for uh, 400 years ago. Absolutely. OK. So, so land ownership matters because land ownership gives us and this is an agricultural rich state. That's our number one uh, export. That's our GDP comes from agriculture. And so land is valuable. And so they want to make sure that the profits from land, that the maximum value can be received from land. But I believe that people need to be able to live on this land because, you know, we don't need to outspend ourselves so that we can have money for other things that we need. Are you getting any type of collaboration, talking, folks saying, okay, Mayor Dickens, maybe we can carve out something for the city of Atlanta, or even hearing that type of narrative? Uh, people are 
afraid of um, what happens when Atlanta does something. Like when I created inclusionary zoning policy, now Duraville has one. Now Decatur has one. Now Dunwoody and Sandy Springs are teetering around on that. So um, because it works. Mm -hmm. And so if we end up getting the ability for me to set rent control or for me to do a, a minimum wage for any employer in the city of Atlanta, like I set it for $15 an hour for city employees, I'd like to make everybody be at $15. Once we start that, they think that's going to um, kind of grow like wildfire across the city, across the state. For me, I'm just trying to make sure that the heartbeat of the South, the city of Atlanta, has the local control to be able to make these decisions for ourselves. And so we might do rent control on something new. We might mm -hmm. do rent control on something of a certain size. Um, and when I say rent control, I'm not trying to scare you into believing that if you are a landlord that you won't be able to make a profit, but we'll make sure we dial it in right because we'll have the ability to have a, a, a healthy conversation around it. But right now we're handcuffed. Well, what about something that does not deny someone housing because they have a voucher? Yeah, we can't do I mean, in my opinion, that's something that I think we've already uh, resolved. And now it's more of a compliance issue uh, because I remember as a city council, we were working on fair housing um, uh, requirements and making sure that uh, landlords were taking these vouchers. And so now there's an enforcement mechanism that we really need to make sure we build up, because I believe that if you have a voucher that somebody is going to pay the difference in your rent. I mean, like there's there, there's rent in Midtown that's twenty three hundred dollars, and if you got a family of two or three, and you can only pay seven hundred of that, the federal government is going to pay the other sixteen hundred dollars. That 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 Midtown high rise needs to take that rent. They need to take that voucher, and if they're not, then they then we need to do something about that. As we wrap up in those eight years, and you're coming back here because now you're probably going to run for I don't know president or something, but you're going to say to me, Rose, here's where we are on our. Our housing crisis right. eight years ago when I, I, I was in the studio. What are you going to tell me? Hopefully. Well, first of all, it's going to be the Dre and Rose show in eight years. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do in eight years. <laughs> the Dre and Rose show. And we're going to be talking to the next mayor about how you're going to top 20,000 units. Because we're going to have them all. All right. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, as always, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. All right. Glad you're feeling better. You're out the cast. That's right. I'm out. I'm outcast you get it <laughs> well, the south got something to say <laughs> we're back in a moment And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, some of you listeners probably can fondly recall when the Sweet Auburn neighborhood was really bustling. And we know, like, back in the 40s and 50s, Sweet Auburn was an economic haven for black-owned businesses, churches, nightclubs, eateries, newspapers. And if you're wondering how the area of the downtown Atlanta got its name, well, that's due to John Wesley Dobbs. He was a civic and community leader, although he never was an elected office Dobbs was once referred to as the unofficial mayor of Atlanta, and he gave that neighborhood the name Sweet Auburn. Now, Sweet Auburn was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1976, but in 1992, it was recognized as one of America's 11 most endangered historic places. Since then, there's been some changes. But what's the current state of this iconic and historic neighborhood? Well, joining me now is Shanae Joseph, CEO and President of the Historic Development District Corporation, which we'll refer to as HDDC going forward. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rose. I'm so happy to be here. I gave a brief historic description of the Sweet Auburn neighborhood, but for listeners not familiar with this part of Atlanta, tell them how historic and iconic this neighborhood is. Well, Sweet Auburn, I like to say, is actually the original beloved community. When you think about um, what Martin Luther King meant and the neighborhood that he envisioned, it was his home. And Auburn Avenue was that place. Mm -hmm. um, it was the place where, you know, when we had our riots, I will say our massacre in the early 1900s, that whites were essentially jealous of the progress that blacks were making at that time and, and started a lot of rumors and essentially turned into mass killings of mm -hmm. African-Americans. Um, Auburn Avenue was one of the places that we were treated to. And at the time, it was one of the least desirable places to live. And yet, 
as typically what black people do, we took a place and made it into something amazing. You have an area that is known for so many firsts, and not just African-American firsts, but just first in general. But when we think about um, just the banking institutions that we've had, the first pharmacist, mm-hmm. the African-American pharmacists were um, had their offices in the Odd Fellows building, thinking through the um, first um, funeral homes for African-Americans were um, on Auburn Avenue. But it was a very important, bustling, entertainment business district. It was a place where people, black people, were able to thrive and to live. And most importantly, we worked together. And I think that that, all of those things coming together um, was really what gave us um, this designation of being such an important part of not just Atlanta, but Mm -hmm. in my opinion, um, the United States. So what happened to these businesses then decades after the 50s and 60s that we just see, and I know that the economy had probably plays a role in it too, but then, and folks will say this, you know, as desegregation became more and more, which it should have been, you know, I guess for lack of a word, it's popular or implemented, then you started to see decline in some black businesses. Sure. You, you had a, a few factors. You definitely had um, desegregation where now blacks were able to go pretty much anywhere to live and and to work. Unfortunately, when we did that, we didn't bring our resources back to Auburn Avenue. In addition to that, um, the 1956 Transportation Act had a lot of um, the highways came right through Mm -hmm. and um, dismantled our communities. And so putting those factors together at the end of the day, we were just not able to rebuild as quickly as we would have hoped. Um, In addition to that, especially where H, uh, where Sweet Auburn is located, you know, there has to be involvement and there has to be interest from our governmental agencies, um, our nonprofits. All of us have to come together and decide that the history and the legacy of this space is really important to preserve. And unfortunately, for quite some time, we just did not have that attention and that investment. And so as we started to have you know, this decline with um, our housing, economic mobility, all of those different things, we were in a space where um, we were not seen as the thriving place where we are today. So let me ask you this, is the key, and we'll jump more into the mission of the HDDC here, but is the key also to have, you know how a mall would have an anchor store, is the key also to have an anchor, if you don't have it there, to to help bring back this, what you all call, you want to bring back a thriving and and bustling uh, community for this neighborhood? Well, you know, Sweet Auburn should be the anchor. If you think the about neighborhood itself. the neighborhood itself should very much be the anchor. If you think about the contributions of not just the residents, um, the Martin Luther Kings, well, the John Lewis's, mm-hmm. the um, Maynard Jacksons, but also um, the fact that the civil rights movement started here. Mm-hmm. This is the birthplace of the civil rights movement, essentially. That in itself should be worth the preservation and should be able to anchor Atlanta into rallying around it and making sure that everyone who comes here knows the history and how important this area is um, to Atlanta. Now, you know some folks in, in Alabama would say, now, wait a minute now, don't y'all be talking about y'all the birthplace of the civil rights movement. We can agree to disagree. <laughs> They'll send me the email. I ain't That's worried fine. about it. But let's go back to them because, first of all, full disclosure, I love the curb market. Mm-hmm. I'm in there all the time. Y'all need to know what I'm buying, but greens and <laughs> oxtails and all that stuff. Um, over the years, we've seen some attention to certain certain businesses, certain strips there. So what are you all looking to do? With, with the mission. And, and you said it takes a, it takes everybody. It's going to take a holistic effort. It does take everyone. HGDC has been in Sweet Auburn and really Martin Luther King Historic District for about 42 years. Um, we were on the forefront of the revitalization of this area, um, really initially looking at our housing, making sure that we were providing affordable housing, but then understanding that as a community development corporation, we had to do more than just provide housing. And mm-hmm. so revitalization for us is whatever it takes to make a neighborhood thriving. So our focus right now is really looking back. Um, we've had a, 
we've had a lot of success as it relates to Fourth Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the developer of Studioplex, other projects like Auburn um, Glen, but Sweet Auburn has been neglected. Mm-hmm. And so our goal right now is having a very specific effort, um, coordinated effort with our other stakeholders to really build on land that we own, to be able to support our other stakeholders that have projects that need to come out of the ground, all of us are churches and nonprofits dedicated to a very specific mission mm-hmm. of just revitalizing this corridor. And so how do we work together to, to um, visualize that? And you have that corridor, you have a stretch there, and you have some churches there, and you have some very old buildings. Now, you know, I've get emails, people say, why in Atlanta every time they want to develop something, they want to tear down something? But there's some beautiful structures there. I mean, the Oddfellas building, I mean, there's some beautiful structures there. Can we do this without tearing down some of those structures? Absolutely. And can Absolutely. And that's, to be honest, um, my organization, um, sister organizations that we have, Sweet Auburn Works, others, it is not our goal to demolish buildings, to tear buildings down. We want to preserve that legacy. We run into a couple of challenges with one, again, keeping in mind that nonprofits and churches don't generally have a lot of revenue. They're Mm -hmm. doing everything they can just to hold on to the property. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the economics don't allow us to hold on or to not demolish that property. And so we fight really hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, But the other thing that we have to remember, too, is that we don't want to separate the importance of the legacy of what has happened Mm -hmm. in that building from the building itself. Mm -hmm. All of that has to go together. So where do you begin? Well, I think I think you take a bite at a time. That's what you have to do. I started this journey in 2018, and when I came on, um, the organization had not been in operation for almost 10 years, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And we just started looking at what is the property that we own? What can we do here? Um, it started with a conversation about one specific parcel on Auburn. It grew into what now one of our larger projects is called the Front Porch. That project is going to be the first equitable development in Atlanta. Um, It's going to have affordable housing, affordable commercial space. It also has about 20,000 square feet of rooftop gardens. But then also looking at the programming. It's not just gardens so that they're pretty. Mm -hmm. It's gardens so that we can feed ourselves. There's a former, I think, funeral home that's now used as an event event space. It's an event space and an art gallery. It was um, started by Geneva Hagerbrooks. The building was built in the 20s. I believe she started the business in the 30s with $300 in her pocket. Um, I believe it was a loan for $200 and $100 of her own money that she turned into a business um, that was making about a million dollars by the time we bought it. But what you also have to know is that there's another funeral home not that far called Cox Brothers that was also started by mm-hmm. a woman. So we have all of this great history right here that's got to be preserved and we need to be able to tell people about the importance of it. How much property do you all own? HTDC is a, a significant landowner mm-hmm. in the city of Atlanta um, or in I should say Sweet Auburn. Um, we are also the owners of the Atlanta Life, the original Atlanta Life Insurance Company mm-hmm. buildings. Um, Which at one by, point it looked like it was going to be it did. It, it demolished. Was, that I can tell you, that was never a thought that crossed our minds. Not your mind. Not at no. all. Um, and again, but that's also addressing the challenges, mm-hmm. right? There have been years where our taxes on the Atlanta Life Insurance Building were sixty-seven thousand dollars, right, for that one for those two buildings. And so, again, as a nonprofit who leverages their properties for the greater mission, having to pay property taxes versus, you know, doing other programming, you have to make this decision and we do the best that we can. How are you all operating when developers, and before y'all send me an email, not picking on <laughs> developers, uh, here she goes, how do you all maneuver when developers who have the capital can come in and start building around you, then that raises maybe your property taxes and it also may even change the character of the neighborhood. Sure. Um, Well, the first thing is partnerships, right? You have to have partners at the table who are extremely committed to the same mission that you have and are willing to be courageous enough to stand up and say that, no, we're not doing these projects for the highest um, profit, but we're doing it a way to make sure that we maintain the history and the culture. Um, I think the other thing is making sure that we hold on to our ownership. That is something collectively our stakeholders, if we can't agree on anything else, we're agreeing on that. We're not selling the property to outside um, buyers, but really trying to work within the current footprint and the current owners to ensure that that black ownership remains because that's a part of the culture 
future and the history of the um, corridor. Well, you're all a nonprofit. How are you funded? Where does the bulk of your funding come from? Can you? We um, are funded really through initially our mixed income product. Um, HDDC has not been able to raise the philanthropic dollars that it would have liked. And I can tell you it, it's an enigma to us when you've got the programs that we have that support racial equity that are important to affordable housing and community development. You would think that it would be a no brainer. Um, but unfortunately, we're still working really, really hard. The, philanth- the philanthropic landscape in Atlanta is just very difficult to navigate for us. But we've made some really interesting and um, profitable real estate transactions. Mm -hmm. And so being that we've been partners in other deals, we've taken those resources and then distributed them back to Auburn Avenue and other programs that we have that we know support the larger community. Folks listening who say, well, if I want to come down to the Sweet Auburn, now I'm going to get you in trouble with this. I want to come to the Sweet Auburn neighborhood. What establishment must I check in with? Is it the... Caribbean restaurant. I'm just throwing that out there. Check in with all of them. You need <laughs> it's a safe. <laughs> you know, you can um, go to Hagenbrook's Funeral Home. Akazi ATL is our um, artist in residence. Four Keeps Bookstore yes, is still you've got there. Four Keeps is very much there. You need to go see Chef Sonya. I mean, if you're on a diet, I would not do that because she will have you all off your game. But <laughs> tell you, Chef Sonya will get you right um, with her sweet potato cheesecakes. Um, we've got a Which lot of so great. Good. Oh my gosh! Oh absolutely my amazing. Amazing. I have. Woof. Yes. Absolutely amazing. So there's a whole lot there to do. And I think that people just have to take the time to really learn more about what we're doing um, and then be willing to come and contribute and participate. And so we can maybe perhaps bring you all back in sometime and if you have a, an update for us on what's happening because it is a historic and Atlanta has a lot of historic neighborhoods save your emails but I love that neighborhood I do it absolutely that and I will tell you our front porch project um, is supposed to be completed next year um, late next year early um, 2024 I believe and that project I think is the catalyst to a lot of the redevelopment and I just wanted to say thank you so much just to our team that's working on this project mm-hmm. really hard it's a very difficult project you can imagine trying to deliver something to the community um, with with no philanthropic dollars at this time. So I just want to say thank you so much to our general contractor, um, Sovereign Cooper, our design team, um, Cooper Carey, um, Savant, um, Karen Jenkins and her team on our structural, all of those groups that have really supported and, and rocked with us through this time. All right. Shanae Joseph, CEO and president of the Historic Development District Corporation, HDDC. We were talking about efforts to keep the Sweet Armor neighborhood thriving and bustling. Thank you so much for coming in and taking time. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. So send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.